It's time for Arrested DevOps, a high-level, bi-weekly panel discussion of DevOps concepts, giving you a tantalizing taste of the basic technologies and ideas of DevOps to entice you to try more. Here are your hosts, Matt Stratton and Trevor Hess. Welcome to Arrested DevOps, Episode 10, Scaling the Application Mountains. I'm your co-host, Matt Stratton, at Matt Stratton on Twitter. And I'm your co-host, Trevor Hess, at Trevor G. Hess on Twitter. This episode of Arrested DevOps is brought to you by 10th Magnitude, helping businesses realize true agility through DevOps and cloud-enabled innovation. Tonight on ADO, we'll be talking about scaling applications. But since it's been a while, you want to tell us about ChefCon, Matt? Absolutely. So we had hoped to do an episode on uh, ChefConf, which is the annual conference for Chef, the configuration management software, but we didn't. So I just want to go over a couple little high-level things that I thought were pretty awesome. Uh, if you listen to our buddies over at the Ship Show, they did a real good recap episode, and I'll link to that in the show notes, and it's much better than any recap that I could do. I was going to join them, but I had a beer instead, which is a shame because they had bourbon and bacon while they were recording theirs. Uh, which brings me to those are pretty much the two best things about ChefCon for the bourbon and the bacon. Uh, in reality, though, uh, there was the one thing I wanted to call attention to that I thought was pretty remarkable is one of the keynote speakers was Mark Rizanovich from Microsoft. And so we're sitting in a room of, you know, 400 plus open source, Linux, God, I can't stand Microsoft people. I mean, everyone kind of around me when they announced the work, literally I'm hearing things like, oh my God, Microsoft presentation, really? Here comes the sales pitch. And he got, Mark got up there and talked about Azure and talked about how uh, for Titanfall, you know, they're running pretty much every single player who's playing Titanfall at any given time is running on a VM in Azure, showed how... Um, were able to provision Linux VMs using Chef directly through Azure, and everyone was really pretty surprised and impressed. And so that was that was pretty cool, and I felt really good about the <laughs> the community for for being open to that. Uh, a lot of other things that were announced. One thing that was demo demoed was uh, Chef Metal, which is if you look at Chef as a mechanism for defining a node, Chef Metal is a mechanism of defining your infrastructure through recipes. Really. Uh, jazz to start playing with that a bit more. And we also got a lot of insight into what the next generation of Chef running on Windows will look like. So I'm going to put some links to a couple talks. Actually, I'm going to put some links to a lot of talks in the show notes. There were some real amazing ones. I, a couple that I just want to make sure that I recommend. Uh, Pete Cheslock uh, did a great talk about two different workflows using Chef for two different organizations he'd work, worked with. And also uh, Fletcher Nichols' Test Kitchen Roundup and of course, and Jamie Windsor talked about the next generation of Bookshelf. So we'll put links to those. But I, I can't recommend that conference enough to anyone who's interested in the DevOps space and the config management space. Uh, the Community Summit is in Seattle. That's coming up in October. but. Mark your calendars for sometime around now next year for ChefConf 2015, and I would say try to make it. But that's enough about Chef right now. Let's talk about scaling applications. Uh, let's introduce our awesome panel. First, we have Steve Corona. Steve, you want to tell us about yourself? Hey, yeah, I'd love to. Uh, so I'm Steve Corona. Um, a little bit about me. Uh, I dropped out of college when I was 21 and uh, worked on a company called TwitPick. Um, TwitPick, I co-founded and 
It's a photo, was a photo sharing application for Twitter, so we blew up, and I really had no idea what I was doing, and kind of learned scaling by uh, cutting my knuckles, just rolling over in the middle of the night to restart Apache and figuring out like how it all kind of works together and how DevOps works. And uh, uh, so I wrote a book on the experiences, scaling PHP book. Um, now uh, I work at a startup here in San Francisco called Life360, head of API Life360, um, but I'm. Just really excited, actually. I just moved to San Francisco this past week, so uh, it's all new to me, and I'm excited to, to be here. Great. And Igor? Sure. Thanks, Matt. Uh, my name is Igor Papirov. Uh, I've, uh, I'm, I'm based in the Chicago area. Uh, I run a, uh, a small software firm called Pearly Technologies. Uh, we make a software uh, service uh, that's called Azure Watch that helps uh, folks uh, monitor and manage and scale their Azure applications. Um, in my previous life, I was a chief architect of a company called Restaurant.com, uh, where I, I cut my teeth uh, on, a, on a large scale uh, computing and uh, helped uh, Restaurant.com, uh, you know, handle large peaks of, uh, of uh, users at various times uh, and migrated into Azure pretty successfully. Uh, and I've been, you know, background software developer, been uh, been doing development since 1992, three sometime then, and uh, we're excited to be here. Awesome. Hey guys. Thanks for joining us. Um, so we're going to get started with the panel. So first, what is scaling? Let's start really basic and get everybody kind of on the same page. That's that thing that happens when you don't have a good rinse cycle in your dishwasher, right, and you get all the crap on your glasses. <laughs> I thought we were going hiking. <laughs> Well, descaling is when you're getting your uh, the crap that crap out of your uh, coffee machine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a different podcast where we have the arrested uh, householdtips.com. So, but application scaling because we talk about it a lot. The term gets thrown around, but in you know, quick summary. What what do you guys? How would you define that? You know, to someone who doesn't know what they're talking about. Well, well I, I think I think before one talks about. Uh, scaling, you want to talk about what what is scalability, and uh, and scalability is being able to handle um, a large amounts of uh, uh, load or extra amounts of load by being able to uh, provision extra resources, um, and it's different than performance, which which a lot of folks uh, you know uh, often uh, uh, compare. Performance can be uh, you know fast or slow, but scalability is 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 uh, Maintaining the same performance over different peaks of uh, of, of usage. In my opinion. Yeah, I actually I really like what you just touched on right there, which was that scaling is not performance. Like they they're not the same exact thing. It's maintaining that that existing uh, application, um, maintaining through all the different use cases and people using it, and also main. It's like almost this idea of maintaining the application as the application changes. With the same user base, like it's more infrastructure than it is code when you talk when you talk about scaling. There's sure. overlap there, but there's a lot of infrastructure too. Absolutely, it's uh, it's really about the uh, being able to handle versus uh, being fast. Mm. So so it's in a way it's kind of the ability to react um, to a to a changing condition. Sure, or be proactive and to prepare yourself uh, for the changing condition. So I guess yeah, maybe not being reactive, but you can dynamically be elastic because the conditions are are, are dynamic. Yeah. 
So what kind of conditions do you prepare for when you're when you're getting ready to scale something? Like what are the sort of situations that you're getting ready for? I think that the the classic conditions that you prepare for are things that you necessarily don't expect or don't see when you're running um, running something that doesn't have a large user base, right? So you're preparing for a lot of times it's failure, but sometimes it's not things like timeouts, things like how does this particular code or infrastructure or server handle when I have a million people using it at the same time? Like the, there are a lot of really um, like fine or like fine-grained problems that you need to think about when you when you scale up that you don't necessarily have to think about when you're a smaller size. But I think really like it all kind of comes down to timeouts and blocking. How do different parts of my application or my stack handle in different timeout or blocking scenarios? How do you handle the Reddit hug of death? How do you handle what? The Reddit hug of death. The Reddit is, hug of death. This is this is where you see the, the the age difference between me and Trevor because I would call it the slash dot effect, <laughs> <laughs> which is I don't think it effect anymore. I think being on the front page of slash dot barely ticks you over anymore. <laughs> that is true. So so that was so I guess if I'm if I'm understanding correctly or, or kind of breaking it out. So there's the ability to scale from the ability to respond to something predictable. So if you have some type of a seasonal business and in one of my past lives, I worked for Apartments.com, and so very seasonal business, right? Way more people looking for rental properties in May than there are in December. Mm -hmm. So, but that's a predictable, something you can predict. Or, for example, one of our sister companies was Cars.com, and they, when they would do a Super Bowl ad, like the day after their Super Bowl ad was a quarter of the traffic for a year, and that's a made-up number, by the way, so I can say it. But it was something ridiculous like that. But they knew it was coming, so you can you can prepare for it. So that's one type of, of knowing that you've got that elasticity, but how could how does one be prepared for the the Reddit hug of death or for for or like and, and Steve, I would imagine in your case for just unpredictable success, right? You sure were kind of built on a certain mechanism and all of a sudden you became the default photo sharing tool for all of Twitter. You know, right, you weren't right. designed for that. How actually? How did you react to that? Uh, how did I react to that? First, by jumping up and down, and second, by pulling my hair out for years, right? Because um, sort of what I alluded to earlier is when I started, I really had no idea what I was doing. I'm not a scaling expert by trade. I went to school for programming, and I had been programming for a long time, but really all like this low volume stuff, and had never done anything at high scale. So learning was like such an incremental process of how do I build something that doesn't constantly crash over and over again and learning what pieces of software to use and learning like best practices for doing timeouts and learning that even some tools that we use and still use and take for granted for like PHP for example has really poor support for doing fine-grained timeouts that you need at scale and just so how did I learn it was mainly by practice and mainly by um, mainly by screwing up the site and crashing it over and over and over again for a long time and learning that like oh wow you need to do this certain thing in MySQL or else when you get to a lot of connections it's going to crash or not work well and like I, there's a lot of it's weird because there's a lot of like tips and tricks or best practices out there that aren't published that only like the the top p 
people in the DevOps field sort of know and they know inside their head, but they're just not out there. You can't find them on blogs. You can't find them on Stack Overflow, whatever. Um, but to your earlier point regarding like predictability, I would argue and inject into what you said that predictability plus configuration management, right? Like you need to have, just because I know that tomorrow I'm going to have a lot of traffic, I also need to be able to set up a bunch of servers without having to actually go and like set them up manually and that sort of thing. So I, I think you learn a lot of what you learn, especially DevOps and especially scaling is very non-traditional like learning. It's learning by doing, uh, I think a lot of the times. Yeah, that, that is very true. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, Steve, uh, how big was your, uh, uh, were your systems that you were running? Uh, uh, can you give us a, like a sense of scale? Uh, for yeah, yeah, so I'd love to. So um, our team at the time, I'll give you a team just so you can have background, uh, was about seven people. So we were always very, very tiny. Um, I think at the highest amount, we had about 90-something bare metal servers. So these are servers from, we use software. They're all like top of the line, um, SSD, hundreds of gigabytes of memory, you know, four processors or 12 cores, something like that. But it was like somewhere uh, close to 100, like 90 something. And then we started using more cloud stuff. Now where we saved a lot in terms of uh, server horsepower was that images, sharing images, you'd imagine like, um, you store a lot of stuff and we were able to leverage Amazon S3 for that and store like our petabytes of data in the cloud, which was A, very expensive, but B, it saved us from having however many hundreds of extra servers you would need to store petabytes of data reliably, redundantly, and you know, geo uh, redundant, right? You need, would need hundreds, if not thousands of servers to, to effectively do that. And maybe less now because disks get bigger and that sort of thing. But um, so using those cloud resources, we saved a lot of servers, but even still we had uh, about 100 bare metal. Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty impressive. And I, actually, I think it's, it's, it's interesting that uh, you know, when you say 90 servers to, a, uh, uh, to folks who are, you know, who are not doing large-scale computing, uh, that sounds like a lot of servers, and it's really a lot of servers. Uh, and uh, one of the core principles of scaling right, and being able to achieve scale is actually being able to take 90 servers and actually have every one of them do work, right? And, mm. and uh, a lot of folks, uh, you know, originally when they when they start designing and when they start developing, you know, it's it's hard to make that mental leap from running one server or running perhaps a couple of servers to actually making 90 servers or 200 servers be useful in, in the scenario. Mm. Um, and I think that's probably the uh, you know the first, the very first step that one needs to think about uh, when they're when they're when they're planning for large scale is what if you had can you use 200 servers? Can you use 500 servers? Can you you know how many users can you can you get onto a server and uh, and 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 be productive if you will? Uh, because a lot of times if you have bottlenecks in certain uh, uh, you know, certain areas of your system, it doesn't matter how many servers you have. You know those bottlenecks may you know may give you issues. Uh, and often, uh, you know, uh, I was, I'm speaking from, from, from the background of uh, as a Microsoft developer. Uh, you know, back in, in two, 2000s and uh, late 90s, you know, we've all been taught to, to do, you know, anterior development and uh, uh, achieve scale by, uh, by having SQL Server in the back end, you know, military with, with the business layer and the, and the web layer in front. And, uh, 
it's it's there are challenges with that regular approach, right? Because there are many components within within that approach that will not uh, uh, scale to the mega level, to the to the millions of people per hour level. Uh, so it's one has to think about it a lot uh, when when they're, when they're attempting to take um, yeah, 90 servers and uh, and uh, and actually having them all be useful. Yeah, yeah, that's a, actually that's a really good point. Now I think about so where I am now, like 360, we have something like uh, 100 AWS instances, and you know we have a lot of scaling experts that work at this startup, and even with a lot of scaling experts that know what they're doing, that are using best practices you'll still go and see like, oh, some of these servers aren't doing as much work as they could be. The load or the, the work is not like being fairly distributed. And that's a really hard problem to solve, even if you know what you're doing. Like, so that's a very difficult thing to do, right, is to, to give all of those 100 servers an even amount of work. Well, and, something, and I think that, it, something that makes me think of is... Uh, a term I hear often used around scaling is uh, scaling the difference between scaling vertically and scaling, scaling horizontally. Uh, could you guys go into a little bit about what uh, what that means? Sure. Yeah, uh, love to. So I think that the easiest answer, and it kind of touches on uh, what Igor just mentioned, is this idea of scaling horizontally. You take a problem and you split it across lots of different hardware server. Scaling vertically, uh, you have that problem or that program, and you just add more more direct resources resources to that server. So you add more memory, you add more CPU, you add more I/O, and you try to just get it done really fast on one server. So everyone preaches right, scale horizontally, get more servers. But I think the problem that you know we just talked on is that it's actually not. It's easier said than done. Like you have just because you have more servers, you don't necessarily automatically scale horizontally. You need to plan for that, and, and it's hard to do. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I, I find typically that folks uh, uh, think about scaling uh, vertically when they're talking about relational databases and when they're talking about, let's say, SQL servers or uh, other database servers like Oracles, uh, where you can't really scale horizontally. You have to add more power to the, uh, to the um, uh, relational server to the relational brain, uh, and it's much easier, obviously, to scale web servers uh, across. Uh, but uh, uh, and this is really one of the interesting challenges of, of mega scale: is how do you get every layer of your system, you know, every component of your system, to be able to take multiple servers and lots of servers, and and get them to be useful. And, and I think it's it's interesting because the old grizzled sysadmin in me looks at this and, and we've been, again, like Igor, you said you kind of came up at a certain time and you were taught a certain pattern. And sysadmins were taught to be systems are 70% utilized, time to start getting a little worried. Oh, 80%, how come you didn't buy me shit yet? 90%, you're screwed. Whereas in kind of the more web scale world, you're like, dude, 100%, no problem use every last little bit of compute you got because the app can handle it because that was if it's if it's built you don't have to have that that headroom and I think the cloud is where you have that ability too because we kind of were built on this we have to start freaking out at 70 percent because it's going to take us eight weeks to get more you know like we know that it's going to take a long time to provision new hardware so we have to get ahead of the curve mm -hmm. And in a cloud scaling world, that's not the case. But 
we're still so used to it that I I have to imagine you can run into that challenge where, like like Igor said, you want to be able to get every last bit of compute out of what your systems are doing and make sure it's evenly distributed, but you still have this old way of thinking that that's really scary when your systems are, are that committed. Yeah, and this is totally a, 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 a legacy of the enterprise uh, computing where you know, it took you eight, you know, eight weeks or you know, and lots of signatures and, uh, and a bunch of approvals to, to get the server in. And uh, you had to prepare ahead of time for any kind of possibility. Uh, nowadays, you know, especially when folks are running either in management, managed environments, or in, in cloud environments, um, it's 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 bad if you are at CPU 20% and uh, and your servers are and you have lots of servers. If you have two servers, it's okay. But if you yeah. have uh, if you have 20 servers and they're all doing a little CPU, then you're you're throwing money away. Well, and that's that goes back to the vertical versus horizontal, right? Because when you're talking in a bare metal scenario, your only burstability is up, right? So you have to have that headroom so that when you have some atypical traffic pattern, you have somewhere to go. Whereas if you can scale out, and you really can only scale out cloud-wise, because unless you've got the fastest, you know, rackers and stackers in the West. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're not you're not going to suddenly throw a hundred more blades into your chassis, all of a sudden. So you're again. I think Igor's right. A lot of this is is legacy thinking when the only place to go was up, but we can go out. And and then I think about that though, and that that leads me to another question: is where where's the fine balance, right, of not getting into analysis paralysis when you're when you're starting something? And saying, okay, I don't want to paint myself in a box. You know, I want to make sure that I can scale this thing. I want to make sure that I'm not going to get caught with my pants down when all of a sudden, you know, I'm on the cover of Wired or who the hell knows what, whatever the Reddit successor similar thing is. Anyway, uh, but but also be able to turn around quickly. I mean, there's there's an old joke which is, you know, Rails app is up in six hours. It's down in six months. And which is unfair to Rails, but I think it's because it's so easy to prototype something without thinking about scale. So where where does that come into the life cycle? How how can we do rapid prototyping and rapid development and not wait till we're totally screwed, right? And and Twitter's kind of a, a an example of this too, I think. Because they started out as Rails, right? And then they they outgrew it to their detriment and then had to go and refactor everything. So what's the what would you guys think is the the magic balance? Cuz I know if you know you know the magic balance and you're holding out on us totally. <laughs> we have the secret malic, magic balance numbers we're just not don't want to share them. Uh, so it's at 42 and a half servers <laughs> is when you should start caring. He's got 100 stack overflow posts in his his Google Docs. <laughs> So I think my perspective on it is that um, as much as I preach scaling and as much as like personally it's really interesting to me to scale things, uh, I find that the easiest way to build something is to not worry about scaling like that classic like don't worry about it until you get the traffic that you need to worry about it because uh, like we talked about vertical versus horizontal, you can still scale vertically pretty easily to a point like if you're on AWS, you're one restart away from like 500 gigs of memory and eight SSD drives. Or if you're, um, you know, using a bare metal provider, like it's still pretty fast to get a RAM upgrade. And like you can scale a lot on one box with just a ton of hardware uh, to the point where like that's enough to probably cover you from getting put on Reddit pretty fast. 
That being said, though, it's like that's not the end-all, be-all. And, like, if you're trending in that direction, you need to start splitting things up into different pieces to uh, as a starting point. But as someone that loves scaling, it's really easily, like you said, to get into that research paralysis where you're like, oh, man, and then I'm going to do this and do this and, and do SOA applications with different backends and, oh, this database is better than this other database, so I need a whole data. It's really easy to get into that trap. And so my solution anyways, maybe it's a poor solution, but it's to avoid that from the beginning and just say, you know, uh, build it as naively as possible and then figure it out. Yeah, I, I will definitely concur. I mean, to get to, get to a large scale, it, it, it's not that simple. It's, it takes takes a while. Uh, you're going to have so many chances to rewrite your system and to uh, uh, throw people at it and throw resources at it to make it more scalable. Uh, if you're just starting out and you're building a startup, uh, you know, take it easy. Get, get the functionality out. Uh, you know, get folks to use it. Get here to listen to the feedback because your system will change anyway. Uh, multiple times before before it actually becomes uh, popular and viable, and uh, you'll have opportunities to to adjust to scale. Uh, but if you can, obviously there are certain technologies and certain patterns that are better than others. That you know, if it's if it's all the same in the beginning, right, then it make may, may more it may make more sense to to try to uh, you know to you know not to be uh, shooting into certain patterns that are kind of dangerous. Right? But otherwise, yeah, it's. Uh, Big scale for, 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 for a starting app is, is the last thing that they need to worry about, in my opinion, as well. I think that you said, uh, so you said you you will rewrite your app, and that's very true. Like, you will rewrite your app, especially if you go from, like, low growth to high growth. Like, it's probably going to happen, and if it's not the whole app, it's you're going to be ripping pieces out of your app and moving that somewhere else. Maybe, like, the lowest overhead way to, uh, to start with something that's scalable, I think the easiest way where it's not too much overhead is when you're building your app, the the first revision, is to have multiple separate small apps, sort of that Unix philosophy of like this little tiny app does this thing, this other little tiny app does this thing, like a services architecture. Maybe that gives you some scaling headroom without having to like go crazy and uh, detract you from focusing on the app too much but like but to go back to what I started this with which was you're gonna rewrite your app so it doesn't matter um, because that's that's inevitable like it's well, going to happen yeah if, you, if, if you've never done a large-scale app before and you're and, and your system and, and you're building a brand new system and in the beginning it's low traffic and you if you ever get to the high traffic it's almost guaranteed that you're gonna need to rewrite it yeah. So, so might as well just put your energy into features and uh, and get the traffic, so you know, so you can actually have the money and the, and the whatever to, uh, to, uh, to 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 redesign certain components. So so that you have the problem. <laughs> <laughs> so what are some some tools? So I know you know Steve said one of the things is there's a lot of knowledge out there or whatever knowledge is kind of arcane and and hidden away in the secret little cabals of. <laughs> high performance or whatever. So that being said, what what are the your 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 tools or your your thoughts of being able to ferret this out or being able to 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 and and also I guess I would ask the question: Do you think that's something that's changed? Is that different these days than it was when you were dealing with it at Twitpic? Yeah. So what ways do you ferret the information out of your system? You know, I still use uh, S-Trace, right? I just wrote a, a newsletter on this actually last week because 
S-Trace for debugging things like in production at scale is possibly the most valuable tool. Like no matter what stats D monitoring and uh, you could have the most crazy modern advanced pager duty setup or whatever, you will never get the visibility that S-Trace will give you when production is down right now. So like yeah, I was gonna say I have I have a running gag with monitoring where I'm like I don't care how much of an elaborate monitoring system every good sysadmin still has a copy of What's Up Gold sitting around somewhere, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, so to that point, like you need to just because you have awesome like a lot of people say, oh, if you have awesome monitoring, like that's it. You log in, production's down, it'll tell you exactly what's wrong, and that's not true. Like you need to learn all these uh, these tools that there's really not that much information written on like S-Trace there's it's an older tool so there's you know it has that uh, a lot of stuff written on it but comparatively speaking to like comparing it to something more modern there's not that much information on it because it's not like a very sexy tool but man it will save your ass when you have downtime so I think that going back and like learning really learning exactly how your app runs from like end to end, like how the stack all comes together, how your app talks to Nginx, how if you use Nginx or Apache, how Apache talks to the browser, how each of those settings like actually impact Apache. Maybe even read, go, go crazy and read the source for the open source programs that you use because it all comes down to those like traditional fundamentals and if you don't know those, if you depend on some external monitoring to, to tell you what you need to know, it's, you're going to have a hard time. And so I think maybe that's why there's not a lot written about it because it's a traditional problem but shoehorned into this modern way we develop applications that's like there's a, there's a gap there. Maybe it's a generational gap. Maybe it's an information gap. But the two don't necessarily connect. Like the way we do modern development still runs on these older, more traditional systems, and that's a good thing, but it's a, a piece of knowledge you still need to learn, even if you're, like, doing Ruby on Rails and Node.js. And you know what? I think that kind of summarizes in a lot of ways, or, or it speaks to one of the facets of, of the DevOps philosophy, right, which is that it's not just this application that lives in a vacuum that's just sitting here, right? Mm. It's being able to understand the underpinnings of the infrastructure that it's running on and how that code is working and how it's interacting. And then likewise, if you're the one who's troubleshooting, because who knows who that is, who is getting called by pager duty, right, has to be able to, to have that, because if, if it's just that you've got Nagios that's telling you this, it's not smart enough to tell you what might be. We, we're still all troubleshooting. Right. You know, and, and I think that's the, the, the biggest thing that I'm seeing that people need to understand in this DevOps world is that there is no DMARC. You know, again, I like to quote John Vincent, you know, it's never saying that's not my job. You have to understand <laughs> a little bit of everything that's important about your product. Mm -hmm. and, and then know when you don't know what you know, right? Or know when you don't, when you've hit the, the maximum of what you know and say, okay, I really got to escalate this to the guy who actually wrote the shit because Ask I can't figure it out. Yeah, but you don't sit there and go, eh, well, Apache's up, so uh, I guess I'll call the developer because <laughs> who the hell knows? And that's really common. So, uh, Igor, any thoughts on like tools or, or accessibility? Again, like you, you're you're kind of have worked in a Microsoft world. Like, how how would you chase those things down? Yeah, so I think uh, one thing that uh, Stephen touched up on that I really liked is that. I mean, there's a difference between monitoring and diagnostics, right? And, and monitoring is not going to tell you 
uh, why it's broken. Monitoring will tell you when things are broken, but not why they are. Um, and being able to diagnose things and drill into an issue is a completely different problem than being able to be alerted when something is wrong, right? Um, so the uh, you know I, 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 I'm not as familiar in the of the uh, the lamp stack world as to what you know, what tools there are etc. I think uh, both Windows world and uh, and the lamp stack world are pretty well stacked with with a number of systems and tools and services that are uh, you know that, that help with monitoring help with diagnostics um, and. Uh, uh, we could we can we can we can name a long list of uh, uh, systems that we like. Uh, you know, I'm, and I'm biased, so I'll probably start with my own. Uh, but uh, uh, but yeah, there the but the important thing is is that I think from the when it comes to monitoring and when you're dealing with with the large scale uh, issues, monitoring needs to be done not just from one system. Monitoring needs to be on, not only reliant upon one system. You want to monitor from as many systems as you can possibly can without generating too much noise, right? Um, first of all, monitoring systems are also prone to their own problems. Uh, so one may go down at the particular time when you really need it the most. Uh, secondly, uh, certain systems may give you a different visibility into a problem. Uh, for example, you know a lot of folks who use our product also use a product called New Relic. And uh, you know, from Azure Watch perspective, it, it's native to Azure platform. It really knows a lot about the Azure infrastructure. But New Relic, for example, knows a lot about the application uh, code, if you will. It's able to actually drill in and show you the stack traces when, when things are happening. And uh, you know, typically a question is, how do you differ from New Relic, or you know, should I use one or the other? And the answer is yes, you should use both, uh, because it's really important to know before your customers do when you have a problem. And whatever tools are costing you pennies per per, uh, per hour to you know to to deploy is definitely worth it when you when you're getting millions per hour uh, in, in revenue, right? So uh, it's just it's just a, it's just common sense. So I, uh, I I I preach multiple monitoring systems for uh, as long as they're giving you valuable information and uh, not to confuse monitoring with diagnostics because diagnostics is really being able to debug an issue. As to why something is down, and there there are better ways to. You cannot just find out everything from an alert. Uh, you have to. You know, alert is generated, and somebody has to go dig in. And uh, digging in is a uh, is a different issue than than being woke, woken up at three in the morning, right? And typically, people get woken up. And you, typically, for some reason, uh, those kinds of you know problems don't happen unless you're running an you know, international business that everybody's uh, on 24/7, which is <laughs> you know mostly these days are. Our business are that way, or you've got all your batch processing going at two in the morning for all your <laughs> transactions <laughs> the night before. <laughs> then you don't really have to wake up because nobody's visiting the site. <laughs> nobody's visiting the site, <laughs> but everything's being billed. Which is why you're running. And speaking of which, then this is one of those things that you need to think about when you're doing large-scale systems, right? There are no batch processing happening. You cannot have the batch processing. Mm -hmm. um, because there's always somebody, and there's always a lot of people who are doing stuff on your site or on your system, and mm -hmm. you have to find you have to find ways not to do batch processing, and you have to find ways not to uh, not to impact your system ever, and unless you're you know um, for, unless you have emergencies or whatever, right? And, or unless somebody approves it, you know, from you know we're all you know it's it, you know it's rarely an issue with big enterprise, and it's. Uh, uh, 
it's usually an issue with e-commerce or with you know with popular social sites and uh, and you know, there nobody will approve if you will a uh, you know a lo long down times or or you know can, can I take the system down on Sunday at 3 a.m. It just doesn't doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, it's it's really a world of of rolling maintenance windows, so to speak, because like you said, there's always something in play. Even you know, even even if you're not e-com, you know, if you're if you're talking web scale IT, you you don't really have predictability in the the world that we live in. People want to be able to do the work whenever they want to do it, even if you're not a multinational company, even if you're you know confined to one country. That doesn't mean that your employees, who are your customers, are stopping work at five o'clock. I mean, it'd be great if they could, but no one does that anymore. It's maybe a bad thing. <laughs> maybe we should take outages so that our customers can have lives. <laughs> have That's guys... why systems go down. We're we're altruistic. I don't know, but I don't think you guys have ever used the IRS website because if you try to <laughs> register for an EIN number, it'll tell you to come back. At like 9 a.m. the next day, <laughs> the system is closed after 5 p.m. And that's not a joke. It legitimately no, I... <laughs> closes at 5 p.m. The system won't let you register anymore. That's pretty cool. It's as if somebody there from 9 to 5 who's actually yeah. accepting. <laughs> that's what's actually happening. You're typing the form in, and it's, it's one of those old CGI forms that just emails it to somebody, and they do something. <laughs> And then they fire it back to you, so that's why that that happens the way that it does. It's actually funny that you that you mentioned this. I, I you know if you if you want to hear a little story is that uh, uh, when I was working at Restaurant.com, I heard about the other company that's that's that uh, does restaurant uh, reservations, and um, I don't know whether whether it's currently the way, but back in the day, uh, when you would sign up, when you would ask for a reservation at the restaurant, they had a IVR system that would dial to the restaurant. And they would wait for a person to actually accept the reservation and press a button. And then they would confirm with the customer that the reservation has been accepted. And then you've got this sort of like JavaScript spinning wheel yeah, that's like yeah. processing, processing. Wow, that's that's a whole new form of blocking I.O. that I've never heard of before. Hey, you know, and it's, as, if you think about it, it's pretty scalable, right? Because you have... Uh, you know the wait time is really you know sharded across multiple restaurants and there are hundreds of thousands. So it's not bad. It's not like you have a long queue of of requests pending, but but each one is a human uh, interactive, right? It's kind of cool. Right. Uh, I just want to give a shout out to uh, Fred who agrees that the IRS website is uh, is an issue. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time we've had a Q and A. Uh, someone pop into Q and A in like eight episodes. I'm so I know. excited. And I was, I was, I decided not to tweet about the Q and A being active because nobody ever used it. Nobody so thanks, Fred. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's better than the first time where we didn't realize how to turn it on and like we didn't Ryan know Barry had like four questions over there and we didn't see them. So again, <laughs> trust us, people, we're professionals. By the way, we did not point out, and it's late to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. And I've had a class of whiskey, so whatever. This is the 10th episode of Arrested DevOps. We are in the double digits, so hey, go us. Um, it should have been two weeks ago. <laughs> so there's that. And so any, uh, we're coming coming close to uh, the tail end here, but before we wrap it up, any kind of parting thoughts on, on things that you would want our listeners to, to keep in mind when they're thinking about building applications? that are web scale IT, whether they're for e-commerce or also just thinking that way within the enterprise? Yes, I have a, uh, a, 
a good tip or maybe a research a resource uh, more than a tip but um, I don't know if you guys have heard of this you probably have I think a lot of DevOps people have but there's a website it's made by a guy that works at Heroku it's called 12factor.net and it's uh, this guideline of how to build uh, apps that are reasonable um, how to build apps that like scale easier than if you didn't follow these instructions basic things like like have your logs set up this way, have your server run this way, have your server like not demonize itself and like 12 tips that are all very very simple but if you follow them when building your app you'll save yourself like so much headache and heartache and probably hair uh, a year from now when you do have to scale it so it's I believe it's 12factor.net yeah it's 12factor.net made by a Heroku guy it's a great resource you should definitely check it out if you're gonna build an app that's gonna have any scale or if you just want to keep your sanity and have an app that's not going to scale at all. We'll put a link in the show notes. Igor, parting thoughts on scaling. So I really wish I knew about the website. Maybe I could have saved some of my hair. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I, uh, I probably will speak to one of the tips on the website perhaps, although I've never visited the website, but one of the things I really preach when one is thinking about mega scale uh, is, um, and as I already mentioned, uh, uh, you know, being able to take any layer and 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 scale it out, and the, I think one of the largest, one of the hardest layers to scale out is the storage layer, uh, and uh, especially for for folks you know who come from the Microsoft world where SQL Server rules uh, for storage or Oracle rules for storage, and uh, uh, it's 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 when when it comes down to large e-commerce, large social, large sites that are just handling a lot of traffic. Uh, relational databases are kind of a little, uh, you know, uh, legacy world, if you will. Uh, or um, unless you're able to shard them out really easily. I think it's, you know, the object databases where the, um, the logic of relations is now moved over to your application servers is really the, the key uh, to think about uh, or, and, and to plan for. Uh, basically, Relational database, relational servers are awesome because they're giving you so much power. But there's a single brain that's managing your storage, and that brain typically cannot scale out. It can only scale up, right? You can only add stuff. Uh, to, you know, you, to, you, you cannot have five servers do a join query for you. Um, but the uh, if you are able to piece things together within your app layer and and relieve the smartness uh, from your storage and bring into your app layer and every app request is now smart and is able to you know bring in the data from various places together uh, and it's yeah it's a little more complex uh, but you're able to throw a thousand application servers at the problem and you can really throw more than one SQL server at the problem that, you know there is there is definitely a ben benefit uh, to think about object storage and uh, non-relational storage no SQL storage so that's my tip great Speaking of tips, we're going to move into the checkouts. This is the section of the show where the panels and the hosts, the panels, the panelists and the hosts give a recommendation for something to check out. It can be a technology, a book, a beer, a bourbon, show, anything like that. So we will start with you, Steve. If you yeah, sure. Yeah, I do. I have, um, this is a quick thing I've been just playing with this week and checking out a little bit. It's a DevOpsy plus app development tool, I guess, but basically the idea is called Council, C-O-N-S-U-L dot I-O. Uh, it's like 
DNS meets configuration management. So you have some configuration management for configuring different endpoints, and it takes that and puts it into DNS so your application can basically be smart and know about your other applications, other app servers, without having to manually configure like a bunch of IP addresses. You just use DNS in your app. The what app servers are where kind of magically happens, and then it all works together, and it's awesome. It solves a problem that I've been fighting with and getting upset about for, like, the past six months. So check out console.io. That's a good recommendation. I, I knew it sounded super familiar, and it was a pick. It was Jamie Windsor's pick on the most recent Food Fight show, too, so we totally ripped those guys off. <laughs> but I'm excited to check it out. I've, I've, uh, I was just listening to it last night. I'm like, that sounds really cool. It is. It is truly as cool as it seems. So, Igor, check out. Sure. Uh, so, I recently discovered a tool uh, that I, uh, for a problem that I posted about Stack Overflow. Um, one of the things that I uh, always want to do when I develop systems is being able to uh, uh, not just monitor them without, you know, by some third-party tool, but actually build them so that they're monitorable much easier, right? Um, publishing stats about how system runs so that those stats can be monitored is much better than just monitoring in, in the blind. And uh, it's when you're developing, it's really bad if you're if you're polluting your code with your logic that, that keeps throwing, uh, you know, performance metrics out to somebody. Um, it's really not as elegant. And uh, I've discovered a tool called PulseSharp that that's basically will make your at least .NET code. Uh, really, really easily uh, monitorable, and you know it'll trap errors. It'll uh, uh, it'll basically capture all various uh, uh, stack traces, and it'll publish performance counters. Obviously, you have to code all that stuff yourself, but it is easily injectable in your code without actually polluting your main logic. It's really cool. Uh, uh, it's it's a commercial product, and uh, but it's but I kind of fell in love with it almost right away. Uh, so check it out. Great, which usually makes it be my turn. We make Matt go last, so he feels bad and has time to come up with things. I'm um, prepared this time. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, so I got a couple things this week. Um, I'll start out with my non-programming thing. Uh, a couple weekends ago was uh, the Chicago Comic and Entertainment Expo, where I uh, I got uh, people who are watching the video will be able to see this, but everybody else is going to hear about it. I got Demon in a Bottle, Iron Man number 128, signed by the artist Bob Layton, who is a really cool guy. He said he enjoys defacing people's property with a signature, <laughs> um, which is really cool. Um, as for tech stuff, uh, there's a really great blog post which describes a lot of the, the issues I've come across doing software development called Programming Sucks. <laughs> It's uh, written by Peter Welch, and it's just it's hysterical. We'll post a link to it in the show notes, but it's it's at stilldrinking.org, which is what most programmers do. As you've seen, everybody we've had on the show almost has brought some sort of alcoholic beverage along with them. Um, That's how we roll. And okay. finally, uh, go on right ahead. <laughs> one one I happened to stumble across today that addresses a problem I came across a while ago, and I wish I had known more about when I did it, was uh, there was an article from Sparks Engineering about the problems with system.io.ports.serialport and serial ports in .NET. 
uh, and where some instabilities come into play using it. Uh, that's too too complicated a URL to say, so I'm just going to put it in the show notes. <laughs> sounds sounds good. Great, thank you. Okay, I've got two. So my first one is uh, this this app that I got called the Hub. It's an OS 10 app. It's used. It's a very simple kind of single purpose app. It's used for tracking uh, GitHub repos, and I like it because I hate email notifications from GitHub because it's kind of like all or nothing. So this just sits up in the uh, status bar and lets me know when there's new commits or comments or issues uh, on repos that I care about and it's and it gives me a little toast notifications and then gets itself out of the way so it is called the hub it's a uh, buck 99 right now in the app store but they're threatening to raise the price but we'll see and then my other tip or checkout is it is about chef conf but it was a talk that our good friend Sasha Bates gave called whip it good and it's basically a talk she gave on how not to be an on the internet. And everybody should watch this talk. So I will put up a link to it. And uh, it was entertaining, especially if you like lolcats. But it actually really gave me a lot to think about. Um, at first, I thought that nobody who needed to see this would actually go to the session. But I think even those of us that don't think we're assholes on the internet can walk away from this talk going, yeah, you know what, I think I've done some of those things. So, highly recommended. Uh, before we wrap it up, uh, wanna let you guys know we are beginning the planning for DevOps Days Chicago. So if you are in the Chicago land area and you would like to be involved in planning of DevOps Days Chicago, we will be having a kickoff meeting. Go to arresteddevops.com slash DevOps Days kickoff. And there's a survey you can fill out if you are listening to this sometime after the middle of May. It's probably too late, but uh, if you're listening to it now, come join us if you want to help us organize this conference, which should be great. So uh, super special thanks to Steve and Igor for joining us. This was awesome and nerdy at the same time. Check us out at, uh, on the web at ArrestedDevOps.com, or you can follow us at ArrestedDevOps on Twitter. I'm Matt at Matt Stratton. And I'm Trevor at Trevor G. Hess. We are Arrested DevOps, and remember, there's always DevOps in the banana stand. Mm -hmm.